everyone. So just a reminder that the podcast is now being sponsored by my favorite photo app in New York City, Picture House in the Small Dark Room, which I'm super psyched about. Yes. Not just because they're sponsoring the podcast, but because we're going to be doing a lot of different things with them. They're going to be involved with our mentorship program and some other things we have um, that we're, we're working on. Yeah, this is a really nice partnership. Awesome partnership. Yeah. It's, it's a perfect fit, right? Mm-hmm. So Picture House in the Small Dark Room, for those who don't know, is a darkroom and post-production studio that's uh, been servicing the photo community in New York City since... 1996, so they know what they're doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if you have a question about film, their amazing staff can help you with processing, high-res scanning, darkroom printing, digital post. And they have an amazing team, um, most of whom have been with them for more than five years, and a lot of them um, close to 20 years, which is Mm -hmm. says a lot about the people at the top and how they interact with the people who work there. And, and they really care about the work that goes through the shop. And it, it doesn't matter if it's doing one print, single frame scan, or a huge 200 image post-production advertising job. They give all the jobs the same amount of, of love and attention. So, oh, and, and I want to say, because I think this is super cool, they just opened a little photo book store yes. um, there at the facility. So you can go and drop off film or whatever and hang out in their photo book store. There's a couch there. And it's really highly curated titles. They do um, artist talks and book signings. So right. these people are in our world. We love them. And uh, and check out their events, even if they're not uh, related to our events. <laughs> yes, yes. They are autonomous. That's right. <laughs> um, they've been around a lot longer than us. Um, and how do folks get in touch with them? Right, so check them out at PHTSDR, that's for Picture House, the Small Darkroom, dot com. And you can also check out their really great Instagram account at the same name, PHTSDR. Uh, and they have a lot of great postings there, and they've been uh, sharing some of our posts there, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. very nice of them. And then you can also, uh, at their website, uh, see all the uh, upcoming events. Right on. Okay, so once again... Picture House in the Small Dark Room, welcome to the Photo Work family. Yes, welcome. All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. And welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from Woodstock, New York, and uh, back home again, and joined, as usual, by my friend and very, very favorite producer, um, Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hi there. Well, thank you. That was very nice. I know a lot of producers. Okay. <laughs> well, that makes that even better. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. You're welcome. As it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, it's not a dig. It's not a joke. Oh, but you're my very favorite so many things. So I could have chosen from a long list of, of things. You're my guy. I appreciate um, that. So how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, You know, starting to dig into those summer projects. I've been out photographing, which 
always feels so good, especially ah, after excellent. a long winter. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I have a little side project going where I'm, I'm rebuilding a sailboat. <laughs> really? How fun. So, yeah, yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll have updates on that. <laughs> I haven't really started yet. So yeah, we'll see I how that so goes. I have so many uh, projects, getting ready to build a big deck. Um, my friend Peter is going to come nice. up and do that with Peter K. Office, who's been on the show, is going to come up and do that with me. Yeah. Anyone who wants to come up and build a deck with us, let me know. I'm. Uh, this is a Tom Sawyer play. Huh. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> Want to build an outdoor shower, but the deck is my first uh, priority. So. All right. Gotta, well, I'm a pretty handy person. Oh, that would be so awesome. I'm serious. Oh, my gosh. Let's. let's yeah. Yes. Okay. Let's I'll, plan we'll work that out. out the dates. Okay. That We're is doing fantastic. this in real time in front of the audience. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what happened. So. I got a quote because you're very handy. I'm pretty handy. Um, my friend Pete's very handy. Um, I build a lot of stuff mm -hmm. up here. But this summer, as I think I mentioned in the last episode, I, I have just a crush this summer of work. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get a quote from some of the carpenters I know up here. The problem is that they have so much work that yes, they do. they'll just give you yep. a ridiculous quote. And if you accept it, they're mm -hmm. like psyched because they just charged you like a ridiculous amount. Right. And if you don't accept it, they don't care because there's just so much building going they have so on much up work. here. Right. Yeah. So yep. I got two quotes that were so insane. So I was like, okay, it's ridiculous. Just going to do it myself with my friends. Um, and so, but yeah, now, now, now that you're in, this is really awesome. Maybe we'll uh, fly Taylor up from Oaxaca and the whole photo Ooh, work. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter <laughs> is the chairman of the board of the foundation. So it would be like a, true. A, it would absolutely be a photo work foundation deck building exercise. Hmm. <laughs> I'm liking this more and more. Team building. Yeah. Team building exercise. Yeah. <laughs> um, you just had a nice long stretch uh, here in Manhattan. I did. Yeah, I'm happy to be back, but it was, it, I did six days, I think, five or six days in the city, which is long for me. Usually I sort of get in and get out, but I I just had a lot I had to do in, I had to be in the city for, and it was a very productive trip, but I'm, I'm happy to be back up here. I, I really do greatly prefer my country life. Mm -hmm. um, as much as I, I think New York City is an extraordinary place, it's just um, maybe not extraordinary for me anymore. But hmm. I can't say anything really negative about New York because I, I feel so much loyalty towards the city as a third generation New mm -hmm. Yorker. But my place is really up here now. You know, I, I've got this app on my phone now, this um, plant identifying app and i just love walking around in the woods and i've become that person oh yeah so. <laughs> it's fun yeah although i have to say i was doing it in the park <laughs> <laughs> so when i was in the city <laughs> i kept taking my app out in riverside park <laughs> a little continuity there yes. yeah it was really fun. people were like because i have a lot of friends in the park whatever and everyone kept coming over and being like what are you doing and i was like i'm identifying mm -hmm. this tree anyway <laughs> Oh, you know what, Michael, before we talk about today's show, I, ju I just wanted to say something about the shows that are coming after. We have this two-part mm -hmm. with Christine Potter and Rebecca Bengo where we talk about their new books. I, I, I was thinking about this. I really urge people to get the books 
before they listen to the episodes. You know, usually we try and keep things sort of broad enough so that you don't have to be looking at the work, you know, recognizing that this is an audio yeah. show. And But we definitely got into it and it would be helpful. Now, I just, of course, want to acknowledge that I, I know not everyone can afford to just buy books. And, and so, mm-hmm. but if you do have a little bit of a budget there, and they're both great books. It's Dark Waters, and it'll be a, it, you can pre-order it now. It's um, with Aperture. Uh, it's coming out in a few weeks. And um, Rebecca Bengel's book, Strange Hours, is, is available now with Aperture yes. as well. Yeah, it's almost like a little uh, PhotoWork summer book club uh, <laughs> yeah, before the yeah, show. Yeah, totally. Anyway, okay, so moving on to today's episode is with the photographer Matt Eich. And tell me, what were your thoughts? Yeah, listening to Matt talk about the way he approaches photographing within a community, especially if he's not really part of that community inherently, and recognizing that you have this responsibility and that, you know, your photographs could possibly do harm, you know, thinking about those things was really mm-hmm. interesting. I I found that to be a really important conversation that you had with Matt and, you know, something that even if it, you're a little uncomfortable with that idea, it's something you should really uh, think about. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated Matt's willingness to talk about it. I know photographers who don't mm-hmm. want to talk about it and who would outright tell me, you know, that this is a topic they don't want to address. Yes. But Matt, you know, it's a big part of his practice. And he, although, you know, struggles with the idea, just like any sensitive, Mm -hmm. intelligent person at this point in time does, is having that that struggle. He's, he's, you know, right now seems pretty, you know, reconciled and clear about, you know, his intentions and and his way of working. And, and, And so I was really appreciative that he was, you know, willing to have a good conversation about it. Yeah, no, incredibly thoughtful uh, about the topic. And also, you, the two of you have a, a great conversation about finding that community of people who you trust to bounce your ideas oh, yeah. off of and look at your yeah. work and even give you the, you know, some bad news. <laughs> you know <what> yeah, I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's sort of the crux of that conversation, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. about the good news. Right. It's about finding people who are willing to give you, to hurt you, basically. I mean, you know, I say that in the conversation with Matt, and I just said it again, and that sounds so sort of blunt and simple, but I don't mean it that way. I I, I think we all know, as people who are creative that even no matter how ready you are for it and how much you need it and know you need it, when someone is critical of something that means so much to you and you're so vulnerable about it, it's painful. And Mm -hmm. so finding people who know that they may be causing you pain, that's a unique relationship. We've talked about this before, of yes. course, and yes, so we, we, t- we talk about it again. I think it's just such an important topic. So Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, okay. So uh, ending on that note of pain, why don't we get, <laughs> <laughs> why don't we get to it? It's a great episode. Um, mm-hmm. Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Matt Eich. Matt 
Matt Eich, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, so I'm really glad that you uh, found time in your schedule. Thank you. Thanks for making time to chat. It's always good to catch up. Yeah, it is. I do feel a little bit like this could just be a Matt and Sasha catch-up session because we haven't talked for a long time. But it'll all be on the podcast. And as we were saying before we started recording, hopefully... The canines, Corky, Corky. and Pe- Courtney or Corky? Corky with a C. And, uh, and Peanut will not be too disruptive. Um, so, you know, we like to start the show with the photographer, you, guest, telling the audience um, about, you know, where they're from and their, their personal and artistic journey. So if you don't mind, please take it away. Sure. My name is Matt Eich. I'm a photographic essayist. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I teach photography at Corcoran School of the Arts and Design up in D.C. at the George Washington University. I was born in Richmond and grew up in the southeast part of Virginia in Suffolk, Smithfield, mostly out kind of in the sticks. The oldest of four kids and was homeschooled for a while growing up. Um, My introduction to photography came when I was pretty young, around 10, when my grandmother was dying of Alzheimer's disease. My grandfather took me on a road trip and handed me a little point-and-shoot camera to document the journey. And I still remember getting the film back from that trip and, and the kind of visceral reaction that occurred seeing the pictures that, that I remember making and, and feeling transported back to that experience of standing there, pushing the button, And I think I kind of pushed that aside in my head for a little bit. And then maybe a year or so later, discovered my parents' camera in the closet, just kind of tucked away, not being used, and picked that up and started playing with that a little more seriously. And that, you know, just kept snowballing for a while. Um, So I photographed pretty seriously, mostly color slide, mostly nature because there weren't a lot of other people around and I was an introvert and you know nature was more my speed I guess and that was also the the genre of photography that I felt most exposed to at that point in my life that took me up until a certain point in high school when music took over and I played music in a couple bands in high school and and that was a good outlet for my teenage angst but at the end of high school I felt like I had to choose between photography and music, and photography won out. So I went to Ohio University, studied photojournalism, uh, started studies there in 2004, finished in 2008 during a recession. Uh, And when I graduated, I was married and had a kid. And so after that, we moved to Norfolk, Virginia, where I started freelancing. And yeah, now we're a little ways down the line from that. So... I know your early projects um, while you were still in school were, you know, very foundational for you. Can you can you talk about that? You finding your way photographically starting in school? Yeah. So when I was in school, you know, it started kind of exploring the little town that that I was attending uh, university in. So that was Athens, Ohio, on the southeast border of the the state, kind of near West Virginia. It's a really beautiful place, but it was also really deeply impacted by the withdrawal of extractive industry, which happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And 
around the time that I was in school, the opioid crisis was brewing, but not really fully recognized. Um, but that was coinciding with the recession. I think in the first year or so, I was really exploring the town itself, trying to get my bearings, and then pretty quickly grew a bit bored with the the college scene. And photographically speaking, I felt like there had to be something more to the area. So I began exploring the communities on the outskirts of that university town. And that's really where a lot of the the time was spent for my college classes. I was mostly going to these places kind of on the outskirts of the city and trying to get to know individuals in the communities there. I was kind of doing that for a couple years before one of my friends was looking at the work with me during an edit session one day and he was like, hey, have you ever considered all of these various projects as one thing? And he suggested that I throw a bunch of different projects into one folder together and put on a song, which was Carry Me Ohio by uh, Sun Kill Moon. Sun Kill Moon. <laughs> and I was familiar with them. I'd heard the song. I've always been deeply influenced by music, but I had never really thought of the work kind of under the spell of that music necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tried that exercise and it's like, oh, that, that's right. I guess everything is connected. They, they aren't these little compartmentalized stories for class assignments. There's a thread that runs through. And so that's where that first body of work kind of started to take shape. It was published in 2016 by Sturm and Drang uh, under the title Carry Me Ohio. And that was the first in a series of what will be four books. And the overarching title of the series is The Invisible Yoke. But this work is me looking at America through a few different kind of geographic microcosms, but thinking about the weight of memory on our collective consciousness as Americans. I'm still very fascinated in memory, both on a personal and a collective level, based on my kind of connection to the medium you know, being introduced around the time that my grandmother was dying of Alzheimer's, right? I watched her memory be erased and her identity along with it. And so I was thinking about that in the back of my head on a personal level, but it started to, to really tug at me um, as I was making this work, thinking about it on a social level, a societal level, how memory functions and particularly how we as Americans have a tendency towards amnesia and forgetting the things that we do to one another and to others. So the work in Ohio continued past graduation. I kept returning and trying to document some of the same communities and some of the same families. So that work spanned from 2010, I'm sorry, 2006 until 2016. And then I started working on a series called Sin and Salvation in Baptist Town, which is set in Greenwood, Mississippi. That started in 2010 as an assignment and then kind of unspooled over the course of another seven years um, after that assignment completed. And at this point, we were living in Virginia, and I was constantly documenting the community that I was a part of and living in. And so that became the third volume, which is called The Seven Cities, and that looks at the Hampton Roads region where I grew up and was particularly thinking about the military-industrial complex and how that impacts the politics and the socioeconomics of the region. And all the while I was traveling around America and doing assignment work. And those photographs didn't immediately have a home. But uh, over the years, I've realized that there is a thread that runs through those photographs as well. And that is to be the final volume in the series, which will be called We the Free. And that is due out this fall. I'm very behind in the editing process due to the teaching obligations, but I'm hopeful that that will 
come quick now that the summer's happening. Just a side note that I, I love the song Carry Me Ohio. It was a song I used to listen to sort of over and over at a point in my life and listened to a lot of Sun Kill Moon. And I went back and listened to it again and, and really listened to the lyrics. And it definitely shaped the way I looked at the work. How do you feel about that? I mean, is that weird to you or does that feel right to you? There's probably no right or wrong, but I wondered if there was just, you know, hearing that from uh, someone looking at the work is strange or not. I mean, it, it's always interesting to me how music shapes our perceptions, right? When we're reading something, when we're viewing something, sometimes I feel like it can uh, overshadow how we might view something apart from mm -hmm. it, right? So I'm always a little reticent of, of overly layering one thing on top of another in that way, but I can't separate myself from other artistic influences like music and more recently poetry is, has been something that's really been kind of percolating within the work more and more. And so for people that know what that title references, uh, I'm, I'm usually quite happy to hear that they have heard the song and it might yeah. give them a, a greater sense of at least the emotional tenor. I think that the, the work was speaking towards. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a very emotional song. It's, that's sort of why I was asking because it's not, it, it really gets in you. Mm -hmm. I recommend people listen to it. It's a, a beautiful song. So tell me about the difference for you when you're making work that is out in the world of other communities. And I want to talk also about what the implications of that and, and what that means to you, but versus your very, you know, your more personal work, like I love you, I'm leaving, or I think a lot of the seasonal blues stuff, but particularly, you know, I want to talk about the invisible yoke as compared to I love you, I'm leaving. And maybe you could tell people a little bit about that project, which I love. It's, it's one of my favorite uh, projects. Thank you. Um, so the Invisible Yoke work really kind of started during my undergrad studies and continued up until I'd say about 2020. So after I finished grad school, but there was a shift in my practice. And ex excuse me, Matt, did you go to Hartford for I grad did. school? I did. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. in 2014, okay. I started an MFA at University of Hartford, their uh, limited residency program through Hartford Art School. And I wrap that up. Which is a turn away from that sort of journalistic approach, right? Hartford is, that's not what they're known for. No, no. And that was exactly what I was looking for was a kind of way to expand my visual vocabulary and my understanding of the medium. Um, and I feel like that was a, a good place for that. So yeah. I started the MFA in 2014, wrapped that up in 2016. And when I came into the program, it was with the Invisible Yoke work, thinking that this was the kind of incubator that I was going to resolve that work. And the, the faculty were, were pretty adamant that they were not interested in what I came in doing and that they wanted to push me somewhere mm -hmm. else. And it was during that process that I realized that I really kind of have this inner pendulum that swings between two different <laughs> uh, areas of interest photographically. And that's, it'll swing inward at certain points where I feel like I have to look at the people I'm closest to, my family, my, you know, immediate 
community and then the pendulum will swing out where I feel the need to kind of understand what's going on on a national level and looking at the country more broadly. Oftentimes that's through the lens of community in a particular place over a period of time, but that seems to be the way that my creative cycle goes over time. And they inform the other as well, right? Like when I'm out in the world photographing individuals and communities, I'm kind of bringing that back home, positive and negative, and the way that I interact with my family and the way we try and go about our lives. And then when I photograph my family, I bring that out into the communities that I photograph. For me, like one of my bigger photographic influences has been Eugene Richards. And one of the things that I've always respected about his work is his ability to photograph those he's closest to and complete strangers with the same degree of intimacy, right? There's a kind of collapse of a emotional distance between him and the people in front of the camera. At least that's how I perceived it uh, in his work. And that's what I'm striving for when I go out and make photographs. I want to depict people with the same intimacy and respect that I would depict my own family. Why the decision to shoot? You'd been shooting color primarily, and then you shot I Love You, I'm Leaving in, in black and white. What was the thinking there? Well, uh, funny enough, in undergrad, uh, I was really fixated on black and white. And one of my professors said, the world is in color. Everything that's getting published these days is in color. If you don't start working in color, I'm going to flunk you out of this class. <laughs> and so I started working in color and that became the mode for <laughs> the next 10 or so years. And then I got to grad school and felt like I was really struggling to reinvent how I was communicating. And one of the, the grad advisors, Michael Varenwald, who was really sage with a lot of the advice that he delivered during grad school, he said, all right, so if you're struggling to reinvent the way you communicate your language, Think about everything that's working for you and strip it away. So if it's color, go to black and white. If it's mobility, put that shit on a tripod. If it's having some emotional distance from it, put yourself in front of the camera and push through the awkwardness. And so I did all of those things and there were a lot of failures, um, but there was something that changed. Uh, I, I was also, I kind of entered grad school photographing rather compulsively. I felt that my undergrad education prepared me to make a mass of images, but not to necessarily think about how they functioned in society or to be really critical about that. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the early grad exercises was, okay, if you're photographing compulsively, you get to make one picture a day with one camera and one film stock and one lens. You cannot deviate from this. And it just wow. about broke me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I'm sure. But there was something that changed. And you know, I'm a bit of a slow learner, I have to admit. So when I finished in 2016, and I think it was probably 2021, I woke up one day uh, after starting a more recent body of work. And I was like, damn, I think I'm doing the thing now that they were trying to get me to do in grad school. It's just <laughs> taken me six years afterwards to kind of catch up with what they were trying to impress upon me. So that process in grad school really led to a shift away from working 35 color digital. I was working more six by seven, but still really clinging to mobility as much as I could. So, you know, mostly using mm -hmm. a Mamiya 7 and staying pretty light on my feet. And so that work that I made during grad school, I Love You, I'm Leaving, was published as a 
rather small run of like 450 copies by Seba Editions back in 2017. But during grad school, I was also making a lot of medium format work about America that wasn't really <laughs> like part of the grad agenda. I was just making it mm-hmm. in the background. And that is supposed to be a book that comes out, I think, next year if all goes according to schedule so that'll be kind of the follow-up to the invisible yoke series and that work is going to be called say hello to everybody okay and it's a kind of look at the years leading up to and during trump's term in office and the goal is to have that book come out sometime around election season next year so sticking with um i love you i'm leaving just just a little bit longer I was watching a presentation that you you did talking about the way that that work is more personal um, and it's it's mostly about your family. You said, despite the fact that it's so personal, you said, but what I'm hoping to make with these photographs is something that's not just my experience, but something that's universally more accessible to the viewer. How do you, I obviously understand what you're saying, and of course, I'm sure that's what most artists are hoping for. But I I didn't want to just sort of take that as a given. And I I just want to sort of see if there's a way to unpack that a little bit and talk about not just what that means, but how do you look at an image and try and determine that? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something that I try and navigate with students a lot because there are a lot of people making work that comes from a very personal place with Mm -hmm. their direct family. How do you create something that goes beyond that? One thing said to me in grad school in a, in an early critique is we don't give a fuck about your family photo album. And you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's fair and valid feedback. And that left me thinking, okay, how do I go beyond, you know, a dad who loves his kids, who's trying to keep time from slipping away. Right. And, you know, making halfway decent pictures. What, what is, something that pushes past that. And it's one of those, like, I guess you know it when you see it kind of things, but the only Mm -hmm. way that I've arrived at it has been through trying to make images that aren't necessarily tied to the specifics, um, but feel more open-ended, more ambiguous. Um, One of the things that was really beaten into us in grad school was this idea of, you know, you make from a personal place, but then you have to distance yourself in the reading of the work and the assembly of the work you know, specifically the sequence for a book or the selection of images for the wall. It can't be about my personal attachment to the image or the person in the image, right? It's not a picture of my wife. It's a picture of a woman, right? So trying to view the work from that sort of distance allows you to see things maybe a little more clearly because the viewer doesn't carry the same kind of emotional knowledge that you do. It has to be something open-ended enough for them to enter and project their own kind of experiences onto. And there are a lot of things about family that that are universal, I think. And during that time that that work was made, you know, it was when my parents separated after 33 years of marriage. My siblings were all experiencing some sort of, you know, mid-20s upheaval in their lives. My wife and children and I moved to a new city, and my grandfather, who introduced me to photography, passed away. So all of that is kind of the background for those images. And during that time, I was really trying to process what it means to, or what photography is capable of holding onto. I was really grappling with the reality that loss is inevitable. 
and photography is a small form of defiance against that kind of knowledge. And I was thinking about the fragility of love and, of course, memory as it relates to all of this, um, and the ties that hopefully bind family together through upheaval and loss. Were you very close to your grandmother? I wonder if, I mean, obviously for a child to see a, a loved one, a relative, a close relative like your grandmother grappling with the awfulness that is Alzheimer's. But it, 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 it's just so interesting the way these things fuse that during that time is when you were given your first camera by your grandfather. And I, I just wonder how much, you know, your, because you, you just mentioned memory um, and loss. So I, I, I just wonder how much of your maniacal output as a photographer <laughs> is connected to that sort of early, you know, trauma of, I mean, Alzheimer's is, is very traumatic. And, you know, those of us who have experienced it with a loved one, you know, you were too young to be thinking this, but I think for a lot of people, my, myself included, you, you know, you want to get to the most, you know, Zen Buddhist place possible where you accept the person 100% for who they are in whatever moment they're in. But we're human, and that's very difficult. And so a lot of the time, we wind up experiencing a very, very deep sense of loss as the person that we knew mm -hmm. slips away. Yeah, And uh, I, I just wonder how close you were to your grandmother and there, therefore how sort of impactful that was for you? you know, looking back, I don't have a lot of memories of her uh, because I was 10 when she passed. Uh, but I distinctly remember how strange it was for her to call the house and not, she would call knowing, you know, she kind of moved back in time as her memory was erased, mm -hmm. right? And so right. She, there was a point where she would call the house looking for my mother, but she wouldn't know who I was. And you know, right. I couldn't explain it to her. And then eventually she regressed to kind of a childlike state where she saw my grandfather, her husband, as her father, and he never had his driver's mm -hmm. license. So she wouldn't get mm -hmm. in the car with him to go to doctor's appointments, right? Right. And yeah. so all of that is definitely deeply buried <laughs> in there. And one of the things that making I Love You, I'm Leaving kind of brought to the surface for me, like for many years, I've noticed I had, you know, certain things that I gravitate towards photographically, and it's not usually upbeat, right? And, and mm -hmm. I've gotten the comment over the years, like, your, your pictures are kind of dark. Well, yeah, I, I think that's because my roots in the medium are, are my grandparents' pain and loss, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's really mm -hmm. where it comes from. And, yeah. and at the same time, I, I met my wife because of photography, because I was studying it, because we lived in the same dorm. And photography has given me so many countless blessings and gifts and friendships and interactions and uh, opportunities to learn and grow as a human. And so that's something I'm continuing to grapple with, this kind of shared cut and, and gift. Thank you for 
that, um, you know, topic that's close to me. So let me go back a bit and let's talk about the complicated web of photographing in communities that are not your own. Probably when you started, it wasn't as big a topic as it is now. How do you think about it? The way I've thought about it has certainly evolved over the years, and it's been informed largely by interactions that I've had in these communities, right? And it really wasn't a conversation when I was in school, um, who gets to tell whose stories, right? But it was sort of assumed that insider narratives weren't valid, which I already wasn't really sure that was the case when I was a student. I was like, I don't know if I believe that, guys. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that was the journalism part of it, right? And so within the world of documentary, I found a kind of more accepting, um, open-ended place to explore this kind of pendulum swinging, as I've talked about, between looking inside and looking outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always valued intimacy in photography and that's been what I'm striving for in the photographs I make and certainly don't always get there but the only way to make those kinds of images is with time and with trust and so over the years I tend to find a kind of set parameters for a place that I'm interested in and then I walk and or drive a beat and I meet people and I'm always looking for somebody that I feel some sort of connection with. And one of the things that I realized within the Invisible Yoke work, in a lot of the communities that I went to, I was meeting guys who were kind of flawed father figures that would accept me and invite me into their lives and into their families. And as a young father trying to figure out what kind of dad I was trying to be, being around these guys helped clarify that. And I helped me to see them as more rounded human beings. So I've always wanted to spend as much time as possible in places. Usually that means that I have to return over many years. Um, And I'll try and find one individual or family that I kind of stick with for the duration. And sometimes, you know, there are single images and bodies of work that come from very brief interactions, but the meat of the work Uh, usually stems from these kind of long-form connections to people that I return to again and again. And in the process, I'm trying to talk with them about what I'm doing, right? I'm not just like showing up and hanging out and not telling them what's up. Um, There's conversations like, this is what I'm trying to convey. What do you think? How do you feel about this? Here's some pictures that I've made during our time together. What do you see? What do you not see? How are you being represented? Do you feel this is accurate? And again, that wasn't really part of what we were trained to do within the the kind of air quotes photojournalism context, but it felt more communicative and collaborative. And that's how I like working. That is not how I can work when I'm on an assignment for, say, the New York Times. But when I'm doing my own personal work, that's the degree that I'd like to engage with people. Don't always get to, but that's the, the goal. With a body of work like Sin and Salvation in Baptist Town, I know that you showed a lot of that work, as you you do, to, this is a predominantly African-American community, and I know you showed a lot of, of that work to, to the folks that you were 
photographing and and not just photographing, but building, you know, relationships with. And you said that for the most part, the the work was well received, but some of the older folks didn't appreciate pictures that had either guns or drugs in them. So I know that, you know, you said that you you respect that and you understand it, but you also don't want to lie. You don't want to sort of, you know, sugarcoat things necessarily. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah. So what you referenced was an experience in the Baptist Town neighborhood where I made a maquette of this work, you know, just like a blurb book dummy and printed it out and brought it down with the intention of showing it to one of the the main characters in the work, this guy named Winky, um, is a friend. And Winky decided to take it and just like stroll through the neighborhood and share it with different folks. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was pretty anxious. Uh, he was your emissary. He, yeah. he was, <laughs> you know, like a traveling focus group, if you will. And, you know, yeah, it's I, good to have someone like that in your corner. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, and again, this was accidental, right? Like I was not smart enough to have thought this through. And when he was out with the book, I was petrified in my hotel room. Like, what what the hell mm-hmm. is going to happen? Like, oh, man, yeah. <laughs> it's going to burn all the bridges. But he came back and he was like, yeah, generally people felt like this was an accurate portrayal of what the town looked like. But some of the older folks didn't think that you needed to show guns or drugs, right? Because it's sort of in the subtext, right? Like, it doesn't have to be literally referenced. And that was a really valuable kind of turning point for me and how I was thinking about the work, thinking about how I could engage with the community about the work. Um, but just in the editing sequence and selection process, I was like, okay, cool. That's easy enough. Those pictures can go out because they were there, but uh, they didn't necessarily need to be. Did that feel like a capitulation or did it feel like it left the project honest from your point of view and intact it felt honest and intact and less heavy-handed, right? Because mm-hmm. I think especially photojournalism tends to be, you know, a little drama-heavy, um, right? And guns and drugs are mm-hmm. part of that, mm-hmm. right? But when a community has often been visually stereotyped as being associated with certain things, like what good is it going to do to add to that pile? And that's a thing that I've certainly been wrestling with in all of these projects is how places are represented photographically over the course of the medium's history, right? Like it's still a young medium and we're still a young country and photojournalism is making pictures that are meant to be consumed quickly and then often quickly forgotten about. And I'm interested in trying to make pictures that have a shelf life where I'm making them now, but I'm really trying to talk to my kids' kids' generation, you know? Uh, mm mm-hmm. After I'm dead and gone, these images are supposed to represent some iota of of this experience of being alive in this country right now. And I'm only going to be able to represent my very limited perspective of this time and place. But that's what we got to work with. You include a lot of poetry in your books. Sometimes it's other people's poetry. Sometimes it's your own poetry. So yeah, that has definitely been... um, something that's been more and more of an influence of late. And again, kind of, it's funny how things move in circles, but, you know, in high school, I was writing a bit of poetry, but not seriously, you know, it was mostly adjacent to the music that we were playing. And I was so 
deeply obsessed with photography for so many years that I feel like I cut myself off from other forms of artistic influence. I just didn't have the headspace for it. And then around 2018, I was contacted by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. They wanted me to go to West Virginia and, you know, had kind of a small grant to, to fund it. And unlike most commissions or assignments, instead of telling me what I was going to do, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to do what I'm not usually allowed to do. And usually when I'm sent to a place, it's with an agenda and we're projecting our assumptions onto people that live there. What if we flip that on its head and we go and we ask what is important to the people in this place and what we should be looking at and who we should be talking to. And instead of having some narrative that's always in West Virginia connected to Trump, coal or opioids, you know, we're not going to ignore those if they run us in between the eyes, but that's not what we're going to seek out. Uh, I'd like to collaborate with the poet because I think that would be a dynamic shift. Um, and the director of the, the nonprofit happened to know a poet in West Virginia, connected us, and a matter of weeks later, I was staying in his guest room. We're traveling around the state. He's or, you know, reciting poems to me while we're driving, and we were working in tandem kind of through Webster County, West Virginia. And that experience really just cracked open something inside of me that I feel had been dormant for a long time. And I came back from that experience and started painting and just experimenting in, in other creative ways that I hadn't allowed myself to in the past. And so I started more actively consuming poetry and letting it percolate in the work. And, you know, it had been in the background for a while, but I'd say now it's kind of in the forefront. And so poetry has shaped probably like three or four of the last bodies of work that I've made after The Invisible Yoke. I think you're an excellent poet, and I would just like to advocate for you to always include your poetry in your books. Because I, I think they're really, really beautiful. And because it's it's you, you know, it's it, it just feels so connected to the work and it, it, it creates this really beautiful tapestry. Well, thank you. I, I've never felt super comfortable with writing. It's always been a, a bit of a struggle. So it means a lot that, that those resonate because um, I always feel extra vulnerable, <laughs> including words along with pictures. Most of the time I would rather just let it be the pictures, but I have found that there is a magic that can occur between words and images where they can activate one another, and increasingly that's what interests me. I, I like this one because it, it, you know, it also is references music, but it's, it's the beginning of Seasonal Blues. I think it's volume six. If I could write you a song, I promise it would be sad but sweet, because, honey, you know, songs are made of rocks and feathers. Because, honey, you know, all songs are meant to break your tender heart. If it is beautiful, it is only because it is already ending, and these days are nothing if not beautiful. I know I should know by now, but I still can't tell you why seeing you so often feels like despair. Honey, I just don't know. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, that series that you referenced, Seasonal Blues, was kind of a self-publishing experiment, <laughs> and also a little bit of an attempt to stay sane during the pandemic. So that one was written for my daughters. Kind of like, I guess volume six would have been spring of 2020. So that was as we were 
coming out of those early days and trying to settle into whatever that new rhythm was where we're all doing Zoom school and in the same space and occasionally getting to escape into the daylight and go on walks together. And it was a strange time. So I wanted to just talk about seasonal blues because I, I want to talk about the difference for you between self-publishing. You, you publish seasonal blues under Little Oak Press, which is your imprint, and, and working with, I mean, you've mostly worked with Sturm and Drang. So what are the pros and cons for you? Well, self-publishing, you know, certainly gives you more creative control, but also... For better or worse. For, for better or worse, right. Yeah. And so that means that there's probably more flaws and, you know, and that can maybe feel more human. You know, when I'm teaching a photo book class at, at school, I often talk about the difference between, you know, like a, a punk band that records in their mom's garage versus the punk band that got picked up by a major label and is suddenly recording in a really overly polished studio and how it can kind of kill the soul of a thing. I haven't had that experience publishing, you know, with, with traditional publishers, but there, there's a differing kind of production quality that can be had and different bodies of work have different production needs to hit the right tone or tenor. So I, I was struggling existentially, let's say during like 2018, 2019, I was starting to teach and trying to figure out where my work was headed. And uh, one of my buddies, uh, Jared Suarez, who lives in DC, we did a collaborative book a couple of years ago with uh, another small imprint called Sitar Press. And Jared and I are always talking publications that, that are piquing our interest, but I was struggling. Uh, at the end of this year, and he, he was like, you know what you need to do? You just need to make a thing. Don't think about it. Just make a thing. Put it out into the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he, he wasn't wrong. You know, I made a little zine, and I called it, Does Anyone Dare Despise This Day of Small Beginnings? And I did a small run of it, sent it out mostly like as a marketing piece. It just collected pictures from one year, and I felt this weight lift. Oh, that was nice. Okay, let's try this again. And so then I did a series of four zines during 2019. That was the first set of seasonal blues. And, you know, they had kind of a lower production value and I was still figuring out what I wanted them to do or be, but it was basically a catch-all container for images that I made of family, of strangers on assignment for myself at home, anywhere, right? It, if they interacted in a kind of poetic or musical sense, I could make them work together in this form. And they were art pieces that were also like low-key promo pieces uh, to try and get some work and remind people what I was up to. So that was how they originated. And then when the pandemic hit and I was rolling out the second year of this in 2020, it definitely shifted <laughs> more into uh, trying to stay sane, personal survival. Mm -hmm. how, are, how are we going to make something? Right. Yeah. And it was a lifeline uh, during that time, really, because I was able to continually make and feel like I had a place to put the images. And so that was really rewarding. The I guess, primary differences are, you know, you're doing it on your own and, you know, mostly leaning on friends to look at things and offer opinions on, on work. And there were a, a core group of folks that, you know, every season I was dropping a massive folder on on them and then they would send back what was speaking to them and I would kind of coalesce these different groups of selects and make work prints. And so it kept me 
creatively occupied during that time when I was forced to stand still for the first time in my professional life. When you're getting these selects back from friends, are you going with their advice or, I'm often looking you know, for, obviously, yeah. I'm often looking for areas of overlap. Right. Yeah. So, you know, oh, these two friends both chose these images, which are my favorites. Um, and sometimes they pulled things to the surface that I would overlook. And sometimes they called out relationships between images that I hadn't seen before. And that's where I get a lot of value from outside eyes is just helping me to step outside of myself a little bit and detach those personal relationships that I have to the images so that I can begin to see them as a whole and how they begin to form different sounds as they're placed next to one another. Which goes back to what you were saying earlier about the need when making work of your family to be able to see a picture of your wife as just a picture of a woman. I mean, you know, it's very hard for, I always think photographers generally don't make great editors because it's so hard to divorce yourself for ha from how you were feeling when you, and what was going on when you, when you made the photograph, you know, and obviously that's even more intense if it's family or loved ones. And so when you were saying that, I was thinking, God, I know how hard that is to have to look at a picture of your wife or your kids and just see them as stand-ins for a woman or a wife or a child. So, you know, to have people, and it's just so important, who can help you with that, you know, is key. And I'm just underlining this because I, I just think it's so important. It's It's so obvious, but yet I meet struggling photographers all the time who are not doing that, who have, for whatever reason, have not embraced the really essential importance of having those those people to to help you there. I mean, I think for some people, it's a vulnerability thing, I'm sure, but you just have to push through it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it always feels like getting naked in front of a group of people when you're sending your work out there to, to yeah. folks, but it is necessary because ultimately the work's going to live in the world without your, you know, kind of hand over it, right? Somebody's going to have to find their way in. And a lot of people I think are drawn to photography because it's viewed as a air quotes, lone wolf activity or a solitary act, but it does not function that way. In my experience, it is a community endeavor. And even when self-publishing, this shit doesn't happen on its, you know, like in an echo chamber, just me. Right. It, it is largely just me in the basement you know, grinding it out. But I always have to get outside eyes, feedback, opinions on, on things. Even if I've got something as solidified as a sequenced PDF, it's going to go to a couple sets of eyes before it goes to press just to make sure that I'm not overlooking something or, you know, just making a stupid decision about something I'm including or excluding or a sequence. Mm -hmm. or, and I, I think that most serious writers would probably view their, their work the same way, where there's a group of people that they trust to understand what they're trying to convey, and they will always get proofreading eyes on something before sending off a manuscript. So I, I would definitely encourage folks to find that community wherever they are. And it doesn't have to be other photographers, right? Like, Sometimes no, the, doesn't. the best opinions are going to be non-artists or people outside of the medium because they're not going to carry the same visual baggage that we do when viewing the work. Yep. 
amen to that. I, I always say to people, just make sure you're not asking. There's always going to be people in your life who are incapable of saying anything to you that might hurt you. Mm-hmm. You know, just make sure you keep away from those people <laughs> because they will not be helpful. Right, um, right. You but, should ask the people that, that carry the sharp knives. Um. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, and I've said this before, it's like you're getting ready to leave the house with your significant other. It's too late to change. You're on your way. You're getting into the subway or into a car to go to a party. And that's when you turn around and say, do I look good in this? It's, it's <laughs> like they're not going to say no. Mm-hmm. You look terrible. It's It's just they're not going to do it. And... You know, I've met so many people who think that their best friend or whatever is telling them the truth. And I'm like, they're not telling you the truth. There's nothing in it for them to hurt you except for you to possibly be hurt and mad at them. Like you have to find the people who can either it's the nature of your relationship that it's strong enough or they're tough enough so that even if you are hurt, even if you, you know, a couple of weeks go by and you're not as in touch because some comments stung, <laughs> you know, those are the people you, you have to find. They're so essential. Mm-hmm. Find them and hold them close. Yep. And they're not your mom. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. your mom. <laughs> and it's probably not your significant other. It could be, but in most relationships, it's it's not. I, I, um, I know some exceptions. You know, one of my closest yeah, friends too. is a photographer. Uh, yeah. His wife is not a photographer. And, and she is one of his kind of like final stages. You know, it has to get through her if, if it's going to make it out into the world. And I will often turn to my wife because she's also not a photographer and it depends on the mood she's in, right? You know, if she's in a critical space, that's the time to ask, (laughs) you know, which of these do you respond to? How do you feel about this? Um, And I find that my kids will often speak the truth uh, about my work, whether or not I want to hear it. So, you know, they can (laughs) can also be an interesting sounding board. That's called the peanut gallery, by Mm -hmm, the way. mm -hmm. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up. Matt, thank you so much for spending time today for doing this. I love talking with you and I'm, I love your work and so much of it really speaks to me. And so thank you for, you know, sending me work to look at and and for putting the work out there in the world and take care of yourself and enjoy time off from teaching this summer all those good things. Thank you so much, Sasha. I appreciate it and look forward to the next chance we get to cross paths and catch up in person. Yep, me as well. Thanks, Matt. Okay, take care. All right. Bye now. All right. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 